Welcome to A Texan's View of the World with your host, Jeb Bashaw. Well, good afternoon, friends, and welcome to A Texan's View of the World. My voice sounds a little scratchy. I don't have COVID. I've just been fighting a little bit of cold, what we used to call a cold anyway, back in the olden days. And I got to tell you, I'm in a decidedly better mood today. It's a little chilly outside. I think we woke up, it was around 34 degrees. And since we last spoke, I've had two fantastic hunting trips. One was with my dear friend, Alex Brandon Martin. We went to his duck hunting club on the west side of Houston. It's a charming retreat, a former boarding house converted into a hunting camp. The food, drink, company are all great. It's a true treat to be invited. And the following morning, we got up to hunt. Hunting in Texas is always a challenge. Let me rephrase that. Dressing to go hunting in Texas is always a challenge because the weather is always changing. Recently, in the middle of December, my son Travis shot a trophy buck near Refugio, Texas. For you Yankees, the spelling is Refugio, R-E-F-U-G-I-O, but we say Refugio. It's right outside of Corpus. He was hunting in the middle of December in shorts and Crocs. Crazy times. But back to my duck hunt. I was perhaps ready for colder weather when we headed out at 5 a.m., but it was raining and hot. We went to our guide's new favorite spot. It's always a little daunting when the guide says, Guys, we're going to have a little bit of a walk. For those of you that are unfamiliar with my svelte figure, let me tell you that Alex and I look like a couple of linemen for the Green Bay Packers circa 1968 without the training. So off we went to a gravel pit in the middle of nowhere. Well, let me tell you, it was probably the most memorable hunt of my life. When I say nowhere, I mean nowhere. We went over hill and dale and then down a 30-foot embankment to find these wily ducks. And let me add, they found us. It was a real delight to see the Labrador retrievers working hard to retrieve our wonderful conservation effort. And while the ducks were all teal, and for you non-hunters, those are the small, fast, tasty ducks, it was great fun. I came back to town, and after a wonderful dinner with my wife and a change of gear, it was off to South Texas to quail hunt with two of my oldest, literally, and dearest friends, Don Hanna and W.D. Williams. These are two of my favorite people in the whole world. They are both in their 80s, but they act like they're in their, well, let's just say they're in their 50s. We had a blast. Dinners and time together is so important for all of us, and we cherish every minute. Whenever Don and WD and I depart from being together in person or hang up on the phone, the last thing we always say is, love you. It may sound strange for three men who are tethered together by a lifetime of friendship and a common experience to say that, but I truly love these guys. We've all been members of a fraternity that, frankly, no one wants to be a member of, that of a caregiver for our wives who had Huntington's and Alzheimer's. Not together, fortunately, but two had Huntington's, one had Alzheimer's. And hunting isn't always about killing things. It's about the camaraderie in the field, watching the dogs work, and the great relief that everyone goes home safely. As I say, it's not about what you kill or what you shoot. It's about the experiences of being together in a common love of something you enjoy. As I talk about that, I was thinking about it. Recently, I had a friend of mine who was lamenting the cost of dog handlers while quail hunting, or as he called it, the high cost of quail hunting. I broke it down for him like this. These guides only get to hunt 120 days a year, and they have to feed and train the dogs 365 days a year. They drive 100 miles in the dark, 
to meet us at 7 a.m. in a truck that gets gallons to the mile, not miles to the gallon, carrying water, coolers, dogs, and dog food. Then they put these dogs out. The average value of each dog is about $5,000. And sometimes they will travel with as many as 16 dogs. So they've got $80,000 worth of dogs barefooted to run through sand and cactus in the hopes of finding a quail. If they don't pop a tire in the field or get the truck stuck in the sand or a rattlesnake doesn't strike one of their dogs or one of us, and we don't shoot the dogs accidentally or each other or the dog handler, then the dog handler's had a pretty good day. Trust me. I wouldn't do that job for all the tea in China. Speaking of tea in China, these supply issues are getting serious. I went to Starbucks the other day, you know, that U.S. conglomerate with the devilish logo, and they were out of tea. I mean, how can you be out of tea in a business that sells hot drinks like tea? Crazy. Come on, Brandon. I was nursing a cold and really needed some hot tea. Oh, well, this is not the first time they failed me. They've also not had cinnamon dolce latte since COVID started. I may have to start drinking coffee again from a 7-Eleven. And this leads me to today's topic, breakfast. More specifically, business breakfast. I'm convinced this is a new phenomenon in our generation, kind of like jogging, or I believe it's called yogging. My parents never jogged, ever. I was raised in, as the Democrats call it, a working family. Both my parents worked in the 60s and 70s and my mom into the 80s. And they were both executive-level folks. And I never remember them going to a breakfast meeting. They got up, they had breakfast, which was usually a cup of coffee and a piece of toast, got us ready for school, dropped us off, and were in their desk by 8 a.m. Full stop. Period. They worked 40 hours a week. They had lunch at their desk or downstairs in the building and walked out the door at 5 o'clock. No cell phones or beepers or Wi-Fi or emails to return after hours. Their day was over. And in that period, from the 50s to the 90s, this country experienced exponential growth and productivity. So today, this generation, we start with working out, then a business breakfast, then into the office. No wonder we're so damn tired all the time. I have long been convinced we have a start and stop time to our lives, predestined. In fact, I'm of the belief that we can do very little to alter that timeline, which is my excuse for not exercising or cutting back on fatty foods, and drinking all the best wines I can find. But I started thinking about this whole breakfast thing this morning when I met my dear friend Gerardo Chapa for breakfast. Gerardo and I have been friends for years. Our boys went to high school together. He is one of the most elegant men I know. He came into the restaurant wearing a cashmere overcoat looking like Ralph Lauren. I was waiting to meet him for breakfast when I looked around the cafe and saw, I would say, tens of folks, all ages and both genders, having meetings. Some were moms in sweats who had just dropped off their kids at school. Some were younger men, future captains of industry. And why do they all have stubble or beards? Don't they have time to shave? Meeting for work, some were probably little league coaches getting ready for the season. But the place was packed, as are all my favorite breakfast places, from 7 to 9 a.m. every day. So what is it about breakfast, and when did it start? Breakfast is the first meal of the day eaten after waking from the night's sleep in the morning. The word in English refers to breaking the fast, which is why we call it break fast, the period of the previous night. The English word dinner, from the old French disner, also referred originally to breaking a fast. Until its meaning shifted in the mid-13th century, it was a name given to the first meal of the day. In Texas, we call lunch dinner, and we call dinner supper, by the way. 
The tradition of eating a morning meal has existed since ancient times, though it was not until the 15th century that breakfast came into use in written English as a calcul of dinner to describe a morning meal, literally, as I said, a breaking of the fasting period. In Old English, the term had been morgan meat, literally meaning morning food. And I want to stress right here, breakfast is not a dinner food. I can't tell many times my wife or my mother used to say, well, why don't we just have breakfast food for Sunday night dinner? No, it is not a dinner meal. Breakfast is to be had in the morning. So back to my story. Ancient Egypt also had a breakfast period. In fact, the peasants ate a daily meal, most likely in the morning, consisting of soup, beer, bread, and onions before they left for the work in the fields or work commanded by the pharaohs. Doesn't that sound delicious? Nothing like getting up in the morning and having a little beer and onions to get your day started, and a hot beer at that. So the traditional breakfast believed to have been cooked in ancient Egypt was fowl, also known as fool, rather than poultry. This referred to fava beans, balati bread, made from emmer wheat and falafel, and a mixture of fava beans with onions, garlic, parsley, and coriander. I can tell you that onions are a pretty low-cost vegetable to produce. Our daughter produces over 40,000 pounds a year of onions in Montana. So apparently all the way back to the time of the ancient Egyptians, onions have been around. In ancient Greece, in Greek literature, soup makes numerous mentions of Ariston, a meal taken not long after sunrise. In the Iliad, they note that the meal with regard to a labor-weary woodsman eager for a light repast to start his day, preparing it even as he is aching with exhaustion. The opening prose of the 16th book of the Odyssey mentions breakfast as the meal being prepared in the morning before attending to one's chores. Eventually, Ariston was moved to around noon, and a new morning meal was introduced. In the post-Homeric classical period of Greece, a meal called acrotisma was typically consumed immediately after rising in the morning. Acrotisma consists of barley bread dipped in wine, sometimes complemented by figs or olives. They also made pancakes called tegonites or teginias, all words from deriving from tagonon, meaning frying pan. The earliest attested references of Tagonias are in the works of the 5th century B.C. poets Cratinus and Magnus. Another kind of pancake was statites, from statinos, or flour or dough of spelt, derived itself from stace, flour of spelt. Athenius in his Diaphanisti mentions shatitas topped with honey, sesame, and cheese. So needless to say, breakfast has a long, long history in humanity. In ancient Rome, Rome's called breakfast gentaculum, or ientaculum. I'm sure Father Billack would appreciate my beautiful Latin there. It was usually composed of everyday staples like bread, cheese, olives, salad, nuts, raisins, and cold meat left over from the night before. They also drank wine-based drinks such as mulsum, a mixture of wine, honey, and aromatic spices. I'm kind of liking the idea of wine, but maybe not in the morning. The first century Latin poet Marshall said that gentaculum is eaten at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, while 16th century caller Claudius Somais wrote that it was typically eaten at 9 or 10 a.m. It seems unlikely that any fixed time was truly assigned for this meal. But let me tell you from a personal experience, the only time I've ever eaten at breakfast at 3 a.m. was after a Sigma Alpha Epsilon party when we went to Denny's for the Grand Slam breakfast for $1.99. Interesting, Roman soldiers woke up to a breakfast of pulmentus, porridge similar to the Italian polenta, made from roasted spelt wheat or barley that was then pounded and cooked in a cauldron of water. 
That sounds a little bit like grits. Maybe the early Romans were actually Texans or Southerners. And it sounds tasty, kind of like gruel. Let's have breakfast and then go put on 100 pounds of equipment and walk around all day in sandals. No thanks. I think I would have made a terrible Roman soldier. But enough of the old. I mean, how do we get to where we are today? In North America, the first groups to have produced maple syrup and maple sugar were indigenous people living in the northeastern part of North America. According to Aboriginal oral traditions, as well as archaeological evidence, maple tree sap was being processed into syrup long before Europeans arrived in the region. As the uh, oldest son of a father who was born and raised in Vermont, I can tell you, Rutland, Vermont, by the way, I can tell you that I have long enjoyed syrup. In the United States, the real answer about what it was, people would have start their days with sausage, with egg, and breakfast. That was a hearty meal for those that worked in the fields. In 1620, waffles were introduced to North America by pilgrims who had lived in the Netherlands. Now, I've got a dear friend of mine, Odd Lange, and I'm going to tell you, this is the first time I've heard about this tide of the Netherlands. But I sure like the idea of eating waffles. It's my favorite meal. Later, pioneers consumed largely cornmeal-based breakfast and would also consume meals such as oatmeal for dinner and lunch. Common breakfast products included corn pone, johnny cakes, ash cakes, hoe cakes, and corn dodgers. As an aside, my mother made great corn pones, the best. They were fired in a skillet in a light grease, and I can taste them right now. Ash cakes consisted of cornmeal wrapped in cabbage, leaves cooked in the ashes of a campfire, while corn pone, corn dodgers, and hoe cakes differed only in baking methods. After the American Civil War, it became fairly common in America to eat sandwiches that were made of ham and eggs. These sandwiches were not strictly consumed in the morning. In 1897, the first true breakfast sandwich recipe was published in a cookbook. I guess croque de monsieurs are something the French didn't exactly come up with if we've been eating this stuff since the Civil War. And popcorn cereal was consumed by Americans in the 1800s, which typically consisted of popcorn with milk and a sweetener. Doesn't that sound delicious? Cold breakfast cereal has been consumed by Americans since the late 1890s, and during the 20s, a considerable number of new cereals were marketed. My friend Joe Galati will tell you that that's probably not the best meal for you because we eat too many processed foods today. The reason for this movement towards cold breakfast cereals was inspired by the Jacksonian-era clean living movement from 1830 to 1860. This movement focused on a lot of lifestyle changes, but specific to breakfast, it claimed that eating bacon, eggs, pancakes, and hot coffee was too indulgent. So apparently the Grand Slam breakfast was not a big hit during the Jacksonian era. The first prepared cold breakfast cereal marketed to American consumers was created by, guess who? Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, who introduced it in 1870 and named it granola. The product was prepared with baked wheat, oatmeal, and cornmeal, and was the first brand-name breakfast cereal in the United States. So that's the history of Kellogg's and Tony the Tiger. Canned fruit juice became more prominent as a breakfast beverage after the discovery of vitamins. Circa 1900, orange juice as a breakfast beverage was a new concept. But who doesn't drink orange juice today with their breakfast? The development of frozen orange juice concentrate began in 1915, and in the 30s it was produced by several companies. And who can ever forget the wonderful movie starring Eddie Murphy, Trading Places, where the most important item of the day was orange juice concentrate. 
Additionally, mass-produced tomato juice began to be marketed in the mid-20s and became a popular breakfast drink a few years thereafter. As a young child, I always remember watching TV shows, and there was always a commercial with Anita Bryant saying, a morning without orange juice is like a day without sunshine. That's one of my favorite memories of growing up. But my favorite meal, my favorite breakfast meal of all, is a Mexican breakfast. I love Mexican breakfast. I had it today. I had migas today. They were wonderful. And my favorite old place was on Washington Street in Houston called Dos Amigos. But my new favorite place for the last 20 years has been either Good Company Taqueria, owned by my good friend Levi Good, or the Buffalo Grill Migas Chilaquiles, all deliciously prepared and owned by my good friends Mac McLear and his wife and their son John. And for those of you that don't know it yet, this is breaking news. They'll be opening a brand new Buffalo Grill in Galveston soon. I never thought I'd eat refried beans for breakfast, but times change. And finally, for those of you that don't know, in Mexico, a typical Aztec breakfast often included corn porridge with honey and chilies or tortillas with beans and salsa. Chilaquiles are a staple breakfast dish that dates back to the times of the Aztecs. So this isn't something that came about due to Tex-Mex. It consists of tortilla chips, locally known as totopos, slathered in salsa, and usually come with a side of refried beans. Depending on the region or person, they may be eaten with fried or scrambled eggs, I like scrambled, pulled chicken, sprinkled cheese, crema, diced onion, or chopped cilantro leaves. Eggs are also a staple in Mexican breakfast. Scrambled and fried eggs are usually eaten with tortillas, salsa, and beans. And if you're anywhere in Texas, you'll always see the local varieties, which include huevos rancheros and huevos con tortilla, which are scrambled eggs fried alongside pieces of torn tortillas. Man, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. So I guess, folks, the answer is I've been eating for breakfast for years, but now it's more formalized into a business ritual. People don't just have breakfast, they go to a breakfast, or let's do breakfast, or can you join me for breakfast? And I enjoy starting my day with a friend over breakfast and a prayer and a meal. And maybe it's that meal that will bring back the civility to our culture as we start our day instead of rushing to the office in a hurried way to maybe sitting down and sharing time with friends and having a meal. Well, people always say, why do you do a podcast? And I say, because it's cheaper than therapy. So thanks for listening to my random thoughts today. Today is a great day, and I'm lucky to have each of you as friends and listeners. We have so much to be thankful for in today's world, and if you're ever stressed out about things happening, I want you to never forget that yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, and today is a gift from God, which is why we call it the present. I'm Jeb Bashaw, and this is my podcast, A Texan's View of the World. <laughs>